0: with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at late to the party people. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. Help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpage life and style. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in Western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass and a website will be launched soon at blank Cass.com. located in Whistler, Canada. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York city based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store. St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of November, Saint Evens is supporting Native Women Lead, an organization dedicated to revolutionizing systems and inspiring innovation by investing in Native women in business and leadership. New vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more. Brought to you on Instagram at wear_st_evans. That's where St. Evens. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch responsibly sourced hand dyed yarns and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand, ethically made by hand from vintage and deadstock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Welcome to closed Horse, the podcast that... itself getting riled up about Sheehan on a daily basis. Like, I would say, you know you're a member of the Close Horse community if when you see a Sheehan haul, you don't think, oh, cute. You think, oh, depressing or infuriating or any other negative adjective. Anyway, I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 108, As you know, for the rest of the year, I'm highlighting small businesses, and this episode is no exception. My guest today is Rachel, founder and CEO of Cara Cara. I'm sure you're asking, what is Cara Cara? Well, it's a kind of orange, but it's also an online off-price platform that offers a curated assortment of discounted clothing, accessories, and gifts from cool indie brands and designers. If you're new to the world of off-price, I suggest you pause this episode. It'll be here waiting for you when you come back, and go back way back in time to episodes 9 and 10 of Close Horse, where my friend Salisha and I explained off-price retailers like TJ Maxx, Marshalls, and Nordstrom Rack. I'll share links to that in the show notes. I think it's really important to understand what off-price has been, kind of where it started, where it is now, and how Kara Kara is different from that. I'm so excited for you to meet Rachel, who has very similar buying experience for me. It's kind of wild that we've never met before, but I guarantee we've passed one another at trade shows. She also has a lot of experience working in the girl boss realm, which, if you've listened to the department, you know I do too. She'll be explaining how. Kara Kara is different from all the other off price businesses that are out there right now. She'll share the impact of super fast and super cheap fashion like Shein on Kara Kara and really the off price industry as a whole. And she'll talk about how surviving hashtag girlboss made her a better leader. This is an awesome conversation and I can't wait for you to hear it. But before we jump into that, I have a bunch of messages for you. Over on Instagram, I've been posting the 12 days of slow gifting, which to be fair, is really more like a whole month of slow gifting. But you know what? I'm in charge around here, so I can make it last as long as I want. We really will be wrapping it up this week. Feels like the end of an era. (laughs) All of that slow gifting content is inspired by my slow gifting episode that we began November with, with Danny of Picnic Wear. I was doing some calculations this week and I was like, whoa, I've spent more than 60 hours on these slow gifting posts so far, and I'm not even done yet. But I'm really proud of it because it seems to be resonating with the Instagram community. I'm so excited about the prospect of changing the way people view gifts, especially holiday gifts. But really, yes all gifts, no matter what time of year they're given. The whole nature of gifting in this century has been sort of fast fashionified, just like so many other aspects of our existences. So weird, right? It's maximum amounts of stuff with minimal quality and intention. Gifting is an easy place for us to begin to educate others and have a serious impact because it allows for these personal conversations. It allows for us to influence those around us. One aspect of slow gifting is creating new traditions around gifting and really holidays celebrations as a whole that are meaningful and special. Well. Jessamy of High Energy Vintage called into the close Horse Hotline to share a tradition she shares with her friends. So let's take a listen.
1: Hey Amanda, this is Jessamy of High Energy Vintage in Somerville, Massachusetts. Uh, I was just listening to the holiday gift giving episode with you and Danny, and um, I literally just listened to the part where you're talking about um, whether or not you can pare down your gift list, you know, are there friends that maybe you both agree not to get each other gifts, that kind of thing. And I just, I had to it and uh, share that uh, my group of really, really close friends, um, we did gifts for each other for, for quite a while. And um, a few years ago, one of my friends suggested that instead of gifts, we uh, all make each other Christmas ornaments. So we've been doing that for the past several years um and it's been a much nicer way of like celebrating with my friends um i have this box now with several years worth of ornaments from each of them um so you know it, it helps that we're like four or five couples uh so you know each couple makes an ornament for all the other couples and then we all trade at, at our like christmas dinner um and every once in a while, somebody does do something store bought, but usually people take the time to craft and make something for all the others. And it's, I can like look in this box now, and I have this, this box of memories of all these like sweet things. Uh, you know, sometimes they'll reference like inside jokes that our friend group has, and um, sometimes they're very like indicative of the people that made them. And it's just, it's been such a sweet way of celebrating with my friends that doesn't involve having to go shopping or trying to figure out what somebody else wants or needs. Uh, and instead, uh, kind of centers our relationship over just giving each other stuff. So yeah, I just wanted to share that. It's, you know, um, I would encourage anybody to, you know, talk with your group of friends and and see if people want to do an ornament trade instead, or um, or it doesn't even have to be an ornament, some other kind of like crafted gift, even just like everybody draws each other like a holiday card or something like that. Um, I think it's just has a lot more soul and... uh, yeah, it's just a really, really nice way of celebrating with people that you love. Okay, that's all. Bye.
0: Thanks for calling, Jess and me. I have to say this message was perfect timing because I have been thinking a lot about ornaments this week. I know, what a scintillating topic, right? You know, I grew up in an atheist household. We did still observe the family traditions of Christmas, like a tree, gifts, the big dinner, that kind of stuff. Sometimes we would maybe even bake cookies and listen to holiday music. But as you know, if you've been listening to the pod for a while, there weren't a lot of warm and fuzzy holiday vibes in our family. I mean, we were a family that didn't hug, you know? In fact, I kind of grew up dreading the holidays because it brought out the worst in my family. Like I there I have a lot of issues with Thanksgiving as a holiday, right? That's a whole other podcast right there, but growing up I particularly hated Thanksgiving, not because I was being mindful of the indigenous population of the United States, but no, because it would make my family fight, be abusive, yell at all of us. It was terrible. I always grew up hating Thanksgiving, and I didn't even like Thanksgiving food. I just couldn't see it. It was just a chance for everyone to be mad at each other in one place. But when it comes to the Christmas holiday season, as a kid, I mean, it's it's a, it's, it's a tough position, right? You're like, oh, it makes my family so mean and terrible. But there's decorations, the tree, the gifts. I mean, that stuff's pretty fun, no matter how old you are. I guess you could say our family embraced the consumerist aspects of the holiday without any of the spirituality, and that may be one of the reasons holiday gifting has gone off the rails and holiday decor and everything else for the past couple decades. I don't know. As an adult, my observation of the holidays has been, you know, weird, Most years, we would travel to the desert for a road trip, kind of underscoring the importance of just having some good family time together. We haven't been able to do that since the pandemic began, which has made the holidays even weirder for us. I mean, last year, you know, we couldn't even see Dylan because they were working with the public. There were no vaccines yet. Dustin and I sat on the couch and ate a cheese plate. It was lonely and cold and pretty sad, you know? I know this is resonating with a lot of you. When Dustin and I moved in together years ago, I said that we had to have a tree. I really wanted something to make the holidays feel special because the combination of years of working in the retail industry on top of growing up in a toxic family had just obliterated any illusions I had of joy and light during December. We... As humans celebrate holidays for a lot of reasons, and one is, I mean, let's be honest, it's to feel excited, to have something special to do, to have an excuse to spend time with others, cook things, feel happy. Obviously, there are a lot of other spiritual beliefs tied up in this, but we like to be excited about things. For Dustin and Dylan and me, even though we are rarely home at Christmas, we still have a tree. And honestly, I like to lay on the couch and just stare at it and try to feel merry. This year, we put up our Christmas tree on Thanksgiving, something we've never done before, mostly because we're moving to Austin after Christmas. And I just, I just wanted the maximum amount of time to bask in some holiday vibes. Since, you know, I'm going to be honest right now, I'm super, so stressed out about moving. Moving is the worst. You all know this. Our tree is great though. Most of our ornaments are either handmade by Dylan, Dustin, or me, or they were thrifted. And I'm just going to give you a pro tip. I have found a lot of vintage ornaments at yard sales and antique malls, and they're always incredible and inexpensive. There's something so satisfying about staring at a tree full of decorations with a story I love Jessamy's tradition of gifting one another ornaments. It completely embodies the spirit of slow gifting intentional, meaningful, and thoughtful gifting. It's amazing. I'll just add here that the thrift stores are full of ornaments and other decor that can be repurposed into new holiday items. They can be used to decorate gifts or they can just be used as they are. There's just so much out there. I mean, a lot of the thrift stores out here do a special like holiday room for November and December that is just secondhand decor, wrapping, tins, cards, you name it. I can't believe how much excess the holidays produce. I mean, I can believe it, yet it still can be very shocking. (laughs) If you don't celebrate Christmas or you don't have space for a tree or you don't want to give gifts or all of the above, that's fine too. The holidays are so weird, right? For one, retailers and pop culture become Christmas-obsessed, as if Christmas is a universal thing that every person celebrates and loves. We know that isn't true. You might observe Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or Diwali. You might observe no holidays. I'm keeping Christmas-specific content to a minimum because not everyone celebrates it, and I hate that Western culture assumes that everyone does, that this holiday becomes the predominant theme for two almost 3 months out of the year it just makes so many people invisible for others the holidays trigger pain, sadness, anxiety. The most wonderful time of the year, isn't that wonderful for a lot of people? For myself, it's it's a mixed bag of feelings, you know? It's it's hard. Um and if you struggle with this time of year for various reasons, I I see you and I I know, I know how you feel, and I want you to know that I'm, I'm supporting you. And I hope that all of you are supporting other people who struggle with the same mixed bag of emotions right now, or completely just bad bag of emotions. Anyway, thank you, Jessamy, for calling in. It was a great idea. I would love to hear that tons of other people are adopting this tradition. If you, yes you, have thoughts or ideas on slow gifting, things that you think other people in the community would love to hear that would inspire them, that they could share with others, please give me a call. You can record a voice memo using your phone or computer, which is what Jessamy did, and you can email it to me at amanda at closehorse.world. Or you can call the Close Horse hotline. That's 717 925 7417 of course all of this will be in the show notes. I love hearing from all of you, so keep it up. One of the most challenging categories of clothing in terms of sustainable options is athletic wear. Yet you you can't go out there and work out in a pair of jeans or you don't want to go for a hike or a long bike ride in a dress, although yes, I've done both of those, I have many regrets about it, don't be like me, wear athletic wear to do these things. Active wear isn't a nice to have, it's a need to have. And shopping for it can be so difficult, especially if you're a sustainability-minded, second-hand first kind of person, which I know you are. There should be a more affordable and sustainable way to purchase premium athletic wear. Well, guess what? I found one and it's Revive Athletics. Revive Athletics believes clothing should make you feel good when you move, and that starts with how you purchase it. Shopping secondhand is the most sustainable way to shop, and Revive Athletics is committed to providing high-quality, premium athletic wear so you can feel good when you shop, and you can feel even better when you move. Everything Revive Athletics sells is very gently used, and they carry a wide variety of sizes, from extra small to 5X, and they offer all. The premium brands you've been scoping out, like Lululemon, Nike, Athleta, Girlfriend Collective, you name it. And while a pair of Lululemon leggings would cost you around $100 if you purchase them new, at Revive, you won't pay over $35 a pair. You're getting really excited right now, aren't you? Revive will also buy your gently used athletic wear and athleisure, no matter where you are, and they'll send you a prepaid label to ship items into them. By keeping your gently used items in circulation, you're helping to reduce their carbon footprint. And that, that my friends is the hashtag secondhand first lifestyle right there. All items are carefully inspected and cleaned with Defunkify, an eco-friendly detergent made in Oregon. And I know you were wondering about that. Are you glad I told you? Revive Athletics is committed to building and supporting community. They offer classes in their space in Portland, Oregon, and they also donate items to Rose Haven, a Portland day shelter and community center serving women, children, and gender diverse people experiencing the trauma of abuse, loss of home, and other disruptive life challenges. What an incredible place to shop. I mean, I know you're sold now. You're like, tell me more, Amanda. How can I shop? Revive Athletics. Well, if you're in one of my favorite cities, my former home, the place I think of as my hometown, Portland, Oregon, you can shop in person at their store or you can go online at reviveathletics.com, no matter where you live. And even better, I have a special offer exclusively from members of the Close Horse community. Use promo code ReviveIt15 to get 15% off your first purchase. And don't worry, I will include that in the show notes so you don't have to run and grab a pencil right now. The next time someone asks you where you got your athletic wear, you can tell them, thanks, it's revived. And know that you made the best decision and saved a heck of a lot of money too. Once again, that's reviveathletics.com. You can also find them on Instagram at revive underscore athletics. Go check it out. I think you're gonna love what you see. If you've been following along this month, then you know for that for the rest of the year, you'll be hearing audio essays from different small business owners within the closed Horse community. After all, small business is the future, and this is something I am super passionate about. Coming from working for all of these larger corporate structures and startups that received a ton of VC money, it's more and more important to me than ever that we support small business and allow them to basically turn the way we do business right now upside down because that's that's where a better more ethical more sustainable future lies it's with small business these audio essays are not only a great way for you to learn about small businesses within our community, it's also a chance to learn more about the hows and whys of doing your own thing, of being your own boss, and everything else that comes along with it. You know that I believe the personal is political, and our own personal stories I mean, they drive our decisions and our values and sharing them with others, sharing our stories with others is a way to connect with others and have an impact on their decisions and values. You know, putting a face on things, putting your feelings out there can be so helpful for others, even though I know it's super scary. My hope is that hearing these small business stories will motivate you to shop small, to be a cool, nice customer, seriously, so important, and hopefully you will also urge those around you to shop small, to make it a habit, not an exception, and to also be, this is so important, cool, nice customers. So today, I'm going to play two audio essays back to back. The first is from Chrissy of Honey Bear Wears, and the second is from Melrose of Art by Melrose. They both have a lot to say about what it means to be a small business owner, and I can't wait for you to meet them. So let's give them a listen.
2: I'm Chrissy, the owner of a little vintage shop called Honey Bear Wears. You can find me on Instagram at Honey Bear W-A-R-E-S. Um, It's named after a few of my kiddos' first words. I source goods from the Pacific Northwest with the aim to be inclusive in size and gender and accessible in price. I give back 10% of my profits to National Parks Foundation. One goal I had in mind when starting this business was to give back when it made financial sense. What motivated me to start a small business was my entrepreneurial mindset and really needing a creative outlet. Much like you, Amanda, my career is in the retail industry, working for fashion corporations, having held various positions um, within the buying offices. My current full-time job is working for a major retailer. And in 2020, with our work from home model, I missed the collaboration and connection with people. I felt very tied to my desk. I've always loved collecting but never thought to buy a lot of it, clean it up, photograph and sell it. It's really hard work, researching pricing, driving out to estate sales early in the morning and finding all the treasures that you think others might want. There's a lot of second guessing, especially in the beginning. What customer am I serving? What is my brand and aesthetic? It's really easy to get stuck, but I decided that it's all fair game. If I think it's cool, someone else might too. I got to communicate with like-minded individuals. The things I was listening for sale resonated with people and it thrilled me to be honest. As a mom with an office job, I'm pulled in so many different directions and maybe starting a business was not the best thing to do at a time when I was already spread thin, but I loved it. I still do. I felt like the benefits outweighed the work. In-person markets, most recently, have rejuvenated my love for this business. When someone walks into my booth and compliments the collection of things or the way I've merchandised or a logo that I handmade myself to save money, it's fuel to keep me going. It means so much to me, because I question everything. Should I have made business accounts? I feel like I'm just paying fees. There will always be that when it's just you alone at the helm. But again, that's also the most rewarding part. I have learned to take a step back from time to time and say thank you. Thank you to the supporters in any capacity, from kind words, shares, likes, and purchases. The business is growing with the help of others, which is ultimately what I missed and why I started this business, collaboration. We did
3: it, we are doing it. Hi, my name is Melrose and I am a small business owner. My business is called Art by Melrose. I sell tie-dyed clothing and accessories for the entire family at artbymelrose.com. I've always had a passion for art. Before I discovered tie-dyeing, I was focused on drawing and painting. It was hard to make a living that way, and I worked many different jobs, as a server, a grocery store clerk, farmhand, really any gigs I could find, until I got an internship which blossomed into a job at a tie-dye company. That is where I was introduced to and fell in love with the fiber arts. Tie-dyeing just clicked so easily, like I finally found my niche. I got to combine my love of fashion, art, and photography. Rather than paint and canvas, my medium became fiber-reactive dye and clothing. Everything I sell is individually tied and dyed by my hands. It's very rewarding for me to make clothes that not only make people happy, but feel good. I started a tie-dye business on the side, which began to grow a loyal following, and it got to the point where I had to make a decision. I couldn't grow my business any further without being able to devote all my time to it, but I wasn't sure if I was ready to leave the security of a regular job. I decided I had to give it a shot, and I left my day job to run my business full time. I went through a range of emotions, from fear to excitement. I was confident in my talents, but still unsure of the future. Looking back, I'm so glad I made the jump. It means a lot to me to have the freedom to create my own schedule, but the flip side of that is also having that discipline to stick to that schedule. My business is also in my home, so I have to try and filter out regular day to day distractions that keep me from my work. As the only employee, I'm responsible for all the different non creative aspects too from ordering supplies, to sales, to marketing, and even shipping. Keeping records and doing taxes becomes a lot more involved when you're an entrepreneur. One of the biggest challenges for me has been learning to ride the wave. Sometimes there are lots of sales coming in and other times there aren't, and I'm still learning how to not get too worked up about it either way. It's a lot of work and it's a lot to keep track of, but it's worth it because the work I'm putting in is also building my future. As a small business owner, I feel I have an extra responsibility to society. I make an effort to get materials that are sourced fairly and ethically and sweatshop free. I strive to make clothes that are built to last by selecting blanks that are comfortable and fit well. My clothing is made with intent and purpose. Slow fashion rather than fast fashion. One of my favorite experiences as a business owner is when I can sell my items in person and interact with people. To see people firsthand, loving my work, trying the clothing on, getting excited, that connection is what I strive for. Kids often have the best reaction too. They just have this wonder that we sometimes lose as adults, and you can really feel their joy when they see a tie-dye they love. It makes my heart happy to bring others joy through my art. If you'd like to check out my work, my online store is artbymelrose.com. I also have Facebook and Instagram pages where I post behind the scenes, process shots, and updates on my new work. My Instagram is at art.by.melrose. Facebook is facebook.com artworkbymelrose artwork by Melrose. And I just made a TikTok. It's pretty new. Um, my link there is at artbymelrose. So thanks so much for listening to my story and just know that when you support a small business, you're helping someone to live their dreams. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much to Chrissy and Melrose for taking the time to create their audio essays. I know, trust me, firsthand experience right here that recording yourself is so awkward, so uncomfortable. There's no one out there. Okay, maybe there are a few people I question What's going on in their heads? Most people, let's say it that way, don't like the sound of their own voice, and recording themselves talking is excruciating. Even when you've done it for like zillions of hours, like I have, it's still so weird, trust me. So, I really appreciate all of you who have put yourself out there by doing this. Seriously, it means so much to me. I'll be linking to Honey Bear Wares and Art by Melrose in the show notes, so please go check them out. The deadline for submitting small business audio essays has passed, and I'm so excited about the mountain of submissions I received. Like in the last few days leading up to the deadline, it was just one email after another. There's so many good ones. I'll be continuing to share those in episodes for the rest of the year and possibly into January because that's just how many I received. You know, my favorite thing about working on CloseHorse.World, aka the blog, was hearing all of your stories, of giving all of you a platform to share your experiences and thoughts. You know, I'll say it again, the personal is the political, and our personal stories are what glue our community together, that grow our community, that make others feel welcome and seen and heard. That was the hardest thing about leaving the blog, was no longer having a platform for our community. So I'm constantly thinking of new ways to give our community that place, that space to talk about their lives, their experiences. And I think audio essays are a great opportunity. Yes, you have to hear yourself recorded. Yes, you have to record yourself. But it's not that bad. (laughs) There will be a new audio essay series coming in the future. I'm going to be announcing it in the next couple of weeks, so stay tuned. In the meantime, if you have a suggestion for an essay or a theme, send it my way. Let's get more voices on Close Horse. And speaking of new voices on the pod, it's time, that's right, to jump into my conversation with Rachel, the CEO and founder of Kara Cara. She's great, so... Let's go.
4: Rachel, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? Hi, I'm Rachel. I'm the founder and CEO of Cara Cara, which is a new off-price retailer.
0: And let's recap what off-price is for everyone. I mean, we've done episodes about, which I know you've listened to, about, you know, off-price retailers, but that was like a year ago. So do you do you want to define off-price for everyone?
4: Yeah, so I think that's a great way to start the episode because I do find that a lot of people don't necessarily mm-hmm. recognize off-price unless it's associated with TJ Maxx or Nordstrom Rack, which are the major players in the mm-hmm. off-price retail game. Um, so- Off-price is basically brand's exit strategy for excess inventory. So when they have overstock inventory um, or excess inventory at the end of the season or really any time, they will take that inventory and sell it to an off-price retailer at a lower cost, so discounted cost, so that the retailer, the off-price retailer can then sell it to the consumer on sale. So at the end of the day, it's meant to be an exit strategy for the brands to offload this merchandise so they can clear it from their books, they can focus on the new items that are coming in, and then the off-price retailers can then sell it to consumers on sale. So for off-price retailers... Everything is on sale all the time. Right. But it's like, so it's changed over the years,
0: which is, I mean, you already know this. I'm like preaching to the choir over here. But like if you go into, say, a TJ Maxx or Nordstrom Rack, a big chunk of the inventory in there now is actually stuff that was never leftover inventory in the first
4: place. Right. So that's a big issue with off-price retailers because they grew into these huge volume businesses and brands weren't having that amount of excess inventory that, you know, the TJ Maxx's of the world needed to fill their stores across the United States with merchandise. So then they were going to these brands and saying, Hey, we need more. And can you produce more for us at a lower price by using lower quality products? And in turn, you know, it really ruined a lot of different brands' images. I think that had a lot to do. And that's similar to the outlet structure, which I'm sure you, Mm -hmm. I know that you've talked about on this podcast before, but I think, you know, that a lot to do with like, the rise and fall of like Tommy Hilfiger and Polo um, because they were really heavily involved in this kind of like scheme. It's very, (laughs) um, in my opinion, it's I like like that choice mm, of
0: term, scheme. Yeah. It's very
4: (laughs) schemey because normal consumers that maybe don't have the insight that people in the industry have wouldn't necessarily know. They go into TJ Maxx and they see a brand that they recognize in a sale price. And they think, you know, this is, it ended up here because of it didn't sell, but really a lot of it is made cheaper. um, So that TJ Maxx can sell it to their customers at a cheaper price.
0: I haven't been into a TJ Maxx for a really long time, but I did recently go into a Nordstrom rack out here in Lancaster where I live. And I, the thing that really struck me most. Well, first off, my husband actually found some cool stuff in the men's department. Like there was, it seemed like the penetration, meaning the ratio of real excess inventory from designer brands, was a lot higher in men's than in women's. But in the women's area, I saw just tons and tons of product from brands that I recognized as being like the fast fashion brands and quotes that come from the San Pedro apparel mart in LA, um, which I'm sure, you know, you are familiar with seeing those brands around too. They're brands that, you know, at least in the early days of, of fast fashion, we're supplying a lot of inventory to, you know, forever 21 to nasty gal. We bought a ton of stuff there. We bought a ton of stuff for mod cloth and it's just this like cheap, high margin clothing that just comes in every week. Um, And now places like Nordstrom Rack are representing this stuff as like real brands that are somehow on sale, but they're actually selling at the prices they were designed to sell at in the first place.
4: Yeah, that's so interesting. I would say that's probably because a lot of retailers are now competing with Shein and these Uh fast fashion brands that have the dirt cheap prices. So in order to kind of attract a Gen Z or a younger customer Their strategy is probably to find some fashion items that they can make it appear like they're on sale. So it's kind of like that fake sale um, and plug those into their store and try to attract that customer because I think for maybe a younger consumer that is shopping at those fast fashion retailers that just keep getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, you know, how can a Nordstrom rack compete with that? So I would imagine that's what they're trying to do there. And I think, um, kind of talking about the experience of going into like a TJ Maxx or Nordstrom rack is so interesting because those, retailers have really focused on the in-store experience, right? So they've had a lot of trouble bringing that online, Mm -hmm. but in-store they're like, this is a treasure hunt. You're going to come here and like hunt for treasure. And I think that is how the stores have come to be where they just buy up a bunch of stuff. And they don't really care what it is. They're like, more stuff, more stuff, more <laughs> stuff, treasure hunt. And so that that's kind of the name of their game. And they just fill the store with all of these things. And they're like, our customer loves it. They come in and they hunt for their deals. And really it's like, are are these actually deals, right? Like to your point about the fashion brands from Santi Alley to them creating cheaper product with brands to fill the stores.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I find it so interesting because I remember there being this turning point. And I want to say it was around the time I was working at Nasty Gal where a lot of those vendors in Santee Alley and the San Pedro Apparel Mart were hitting really hard times because they had built their business off of Forever 21. And what Forever 21 was doing was making more and more of their stuff on their own with their own factories, I mean, not that they owned them, but their own factory supply chain in Asia because they were getting even crazier low prices, right? And they needed to be mm-hmm. selling stuff even cheaper to stay competitive. And so a lot of these vendors were really hurting because that had been their big source of revenue for them. But they still had places like, you know, Nasty Gal and ModCloth and like Lulu's and all these other mm-hmm. you E-commerce retailers that were selling their stuff and doing pretty well with it. But then slowly those those retailers went away, right? I mean, I know Lulu's is still around and ModCloth is still around, but they make a lot of their own stuff now. And, you know, this just the whole industry changed. And I feel like those vendors are staying in business now selling to these off price retailers.
4: Yeah, definitely. I think it's probably a mix of off-price retailers and maybe small boutiques that mm-hmm. don't have a production team or maybe don't have the means to to work with overseas factories. So they find it easier just to go down to Santi Alley to fill up their stores. Like I've seen several boutiques that all look very much the same even very popular (laughs) boutiques and they don't really list the brands but Mm -hmm. you know I'm always zooming in on the images on the website and like looking at the tags and I'm like I know where that's from I know where that's from me
0: too me too and even in LA there are several boutiques that I know people think of as like maybe higher end or more premium that are absolutely carrying product from those brands because I recognize it um, the other thing, you know, I just I just thought of this randomly and I just wanted to tell you this. You know who was buying a lot of stuff from there in a private label way was Need Supply. Do you remember Need Supply oh, RIP? Of course. Yeah. They were doing a lot of their own private label stuff using several vendors from Santy Alley because I knew that because their uh the showrooms would show me the stuff that they're working on for Need Supply when I was at Nasty Gal.
4: Wow. That's so crazy. I always, I really liked a few of the need supply private labels, but I'm always, I'm always really interested from a consumer standpoint, how private label plays out because for me, I forget what their private label was called too. I think one of them started with an S, but anyways, I, I, there was one of their private labels that I really liked. And so when I found that brand, I was like, oh, this stuff is really cool. And then I type it in on Google. I type it in on Instagram. It doesn't have a website, it doesn't have an Instagram. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm like, this is a private label brand for made by Need Supply for Need Supply. But I'm like, why don't you just call it like, Made by Need Supply, but yeah. then what's the difference with that with private label? And from a consumer standpoint, like I feel like that's a little bit schemy too, because they're making it appear like it's a brand, but it's not actually a brand. It's made by Need Supply, and like you said, it's you know they're going to Santi Alley and just being. We'll take that. We'll take that. Can you do this in a different color? They're probably not actually doing much design of it on their own. So I just wonder, from a business perspective and from a consumer perspective, you know, are other are other consumers aware of that? Are they googling these brands and being like, "This is a little bit weird"? You know, where Mm -hmm. is this brand from?
0: I mean, I you hit the nail on the head with that. With all the scheminess, because that is true. I don't know. I I feel like there are a lot less retailers like Need Supply or like Nasty Gal that exist these days on the internet because, like, they've all gone under all the multi brand brands, right? But that cheap private label thing was such a strategy in retail for like a good 10 years there where it was like, okay you're going to carry these nice brands that are lower margin. So to make up for that, and this this is something that comes with strings, the strings attached that comes from VC funding always, right? It's like you have to hit maximum profitability as soon as possible. So the solution has always been, and then you're going to make up all that lost margin with your own private label product. And, you know, for someone like Need Supply, who might have seemed really huge, but ultimately doesn't have the buying power of, you know, say, and Urban Outfitters, right, would mm-hmm. go to these vendors in Santi Alley where they would do special colorways or special makeups and let them buy like 200 units, you know. Mm-hmm. But really all it was was like, we're going to take that style, here's the Pantone for the color, and sew our label into it. There's no like tech design or fitting. I mean, we did this all day, every day at Nasty Gal. Like, I, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit that that's what we were doing.
4: (laughs) Right. And so many brands are doing the same. Yeah. Yeah. One of my friends worked for a boutique in
0: um, Los Feliz and uh, the owner was like a monster and did lots of really bad things all the time to her. But she was like really scandalized Uh that this owner was going to Santee Alley, buying clothes, taking out the tags and sewing in her own boutique tags. And I was like, oh no, that is like par for the course, bro, you know? <laughs> yeah,
4: ooh, that's bad. That's yeah, really bad. Yeah, I am.
0: Um, as far as I can tell, that person's probably still doing that. Um, anyway. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so you are the CEO and founder of Cara Kara. Did you, like, come out of the womb? You were like, I am, when I grow up, <laughs> I'm going to start my own off-price brand.
4: You know, It's been a long journey of working (laughs) at a lot of different retail companies. I think when we first spoke, we were like, wow, we've had very similar experiences. We've both worked at a million (laughs) different places. We have very well-rounded experience. And I... I. When I was, I always think about this when I, my first job was at the mall in my hometown and I worked at, my first job was at Limited Two. And then I moved from, -hmm, yeah, I used to like wear the clothes and everything when I was 16 years old. So funny. <laughs> it was it was a very um very toxic work environment with like toxic management. It was a wild. So I went from limited two to Old Navy, and I really loved working at Old Navy. I was like always on the cash register, and our big thing was trying to get people to get the Old Navy credit cards. They really wanted everyone. It was like in the height of everyone having like five hundred credit cards, like a credit card from every store you shop at because it has benefits, but really. Also, Scheme. I think Scheme is like (laughs) keeps coming up at that. It's like who they're trying to get people to get these credit cards so they can charge them all this interest and make (sighs) even more money. And so I think when I worked at Old Navy, you know, I never really thought about I'm from a small town in Clarksville, Tennessee. Like I never really thought about where the merchandise was coming from. I just knew that it showed up at our store. And I <laughs> I never really like thought about it. You know, I was like, this is a fun job. Like I love clothes. I work at them all. But, um, you know, and then I I went to college and I studied fashion merchandising, actually. And I was like, oh, this all makes so much more sense. There's like <laughs> a whole team of people doing all of these things. And so I kind of ended up falling into retail buying. And I moved to New York. I worked for a bunch of different companies. I worked for, um, Gap Corporate. I worked at Rue La La when flash sales were a really exciting off price strategy, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. I kind of got to work there in the height of all of that. Um, and it was, you know, really cool, like young kind of startup vibe to work at. Um, so, I kind of I had a little bit of off price experience from that. And I went from there to Macy's. So, I worked at Macy's Corporate, <laughs> which is incredibly corporate. Not um, surprised. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, it puts the corporate in corporate. It was very, you know, bundled up. Um, I worked in Macy's on 34th Street above the stores. It was offices from the 80s, you know, no windows, cubicles, uh. just. Really, really, really old fashioned, uh, but got a great experience there. Learned ins and outs of buyings, met some really talented people. And from there, I ended up getting a job in LA for a, a smaller company called Bandeau. And they hired me as their first buyers. So they wanted me to come in and kind of shape. Their whole e commerce experience. They were really growing the direct to consumer piece of it and they wanted to bring in all these third party brands. So I got to come in and really grow their third party program, grow their website. Um, I did that for four years, which was also, you know, it was a really cool experience in the sense that I got to shape a lot of what they were doing. The product was really cool. The brands we were working with were amazing. Like so many indie brands that I had admired for years, I was getting to work with. And then from doing that for four years, I started to realize like, oh, Bando has a lot of excess inventory, the third party brands I'm bringing in some of it's not selling, you know, kind of like, what do I do now I have all this inventory, it's kind of just like hanging around and they so traditionally Bando would sell their own line to tj maxx and i would have you know my mom in clarksville tennessee calling me being like oh my gosh i saw bandeau at tj maxx and i would immediately like cringe and be like oh my gosh like there has to be something better i can't Even think about the cute little notebooks, like what they're sitting next to in that store, like how embarrassing, and just like the the whole like lost brand integrity of it. And I think right now we're living in an age of kind of like oversaturation of new brands, right? Like so easy to make a Shopify, so easy to build an Instagram. And with that, you know, you're speaking directly with your customers. So you're able to build these kind of hyper curated brand image, like we want to be perceived this way. And we're able to do that because we're speaking directly to our customer. But when you give your product to a TJ Maxx, you have no idea what it's going to look like or be like. And a lot of companies try to give their excess inventory to TJ Maxx Canada, so no one ever sees it. So that's kind of the goal for a lot of these companies is like, let's just kind of like slide it under the rug, give it to TJ Maxx Canada, no one will know. Like, how will they know? No one will know. No one will know know (laughs) unless they go to Canada, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I guess with that being said, I, I had just kind of started talking to a lot of the brands I was working with. I'm like, hey, what are you guys doing with your inventory? And they were like, you know, we don't have a good ex- exit strategy. We're working a little bit with this or that. We're doing these sample sales, but they're not moving a ton of units. We put some stuff on Depop. Just a lot of them were trying different different things to move their inventory. A lot of them didn't want to work with TJ Maxx because of, you know, the brand integrity piece that I was just talking about. Um, a lot of them don't maybe didn't have enough inventory for it. To, To be interesting for TJ Maxx or for it to be, you know, fulfilling for them to actually place the order because TJ Maxx needs thousands of units to fill Mm -hmm. their stores. And so a lot of these indie brands have 20 of this, 50 of that, five of those. And for TJ Maxx, they're like, I don't want it, that we want thousands of units, which is how they started producing all of the items like we were talking about in a cheaper way because they need thousands of units to fill the stores. And so a lot of the indie brands were, were like, yeah, we don't have a good exit strategy. And I was like, well, this seems like a huge white space opportunity. Like I think I could do this in a way that feels good for brands. Like I'll reshoot everything. I'll make it feel new and interesting. It's all really cool product from really thoughtful brands. Like even though it's access technically it's still really good stuff mm-hmm. and so it seems like there there should be a place for all of that to go where it's on sale all the time and so for customers like how exciting to find a website where we have all these great indie brands with discounted products and being able to shop all of those in one place um, so I kind of wanted to bring the off-price experience online because a lot of these brands were, focus on the in-store treasure hunt. And I was like, I think I can do this online. And I know all these brands and I know they have excess inventory. So I kind of started to ask them if I, if I did, if I started an off price retailer, would you want to work with us? And all of them were like, absolutely. Like we need that. Like we're so down. And I was like, okay, and that was kind of all I needed to hear um, in order to, kind of run with it from there. So that's kind of how the idea came to be. And then, you know, how I did, I, I knew from my past from like working at Arula law. And I was actually at Macy's when they w- launched their backstage initiative, um, Macy's backstage, and that quickly became, you know, the star of the show at Macy's. It's like, the really exciting area. Everyone wants to work there because that's the only area of the company that's really like growing mm. and flourishing right now. So I kind of just from those experiences, I was like, I know off price is a really great industry. I know there's a white space. So let me um create this brand, Cara Kara, and, you know, do do it a little bit differently, protect the brand integrity, reshoot everything, buy the access inventory, and then Provide discounts to customers.
0: You've already talked about how CaraCara Cara is different. Like you're really thinking about brand integrity first, right? How do you ensure that you're protecting the brands and like maintaining that like premium energy, if you will?
4: Yeah, definitely. So, uh, one of the ways that we're different is that we curate our inventory. So, when a brand sends me their off price list, I'm not like, we'll take it all. You know, I'm like, <laughs> right, we'll have this. This looks amazing. That's amazing. You know, I can see why that didn't sell because it, something about it is funky, you know, or whatever. And so right. I, we're more thoughtful about the pieces that we buy because how I mentioned before about it, TJ Maxx is focused on the treasure hunt. We really want to be more just like a curated marketplace So Mm -hmm. I definitely try to focus on items that I know our customer would like, and also curate it in a way that, you know, it, it feels really good. It looks really nice. And so we curate the products, we curate the brands that we work with. I try to work with really thoughtful brands that are making something interesting or, are sustainable or are woman owned or different, you know, they have different qualities about them. I try to, you know, keep, keep the brand list really strong. And I think also we don't make any of the products that we sell. So like how we mentioned for, uh, TJ Maxx is making what is technically like private label, even though it has a brand's name on it. Um, I, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, Mm -hmm. I feel like there's so, so much inventory out there all the time. It's like if a brand changes packaging, you know, what are they doing with the old packaging? They're trying to sell it to us or if a brand Gets a return from, you know, Nordstrom is like, we didn't sell any of this, we're going to return it to you. And then what do they do with that? And so there's all these different reasons why brands have excess or overstock, not to mention that, like, no matter how good technology gets, your brands are never going to get it right. It's so hard to predict what consumers want. (laughs) And they have to commit at the beginning of a season to all this inventory. So there's always going to be excess inventory and there's so much of it out there. And I really feel like it's an issue. So, and uh, on the flip side of that, you have the articles of, you know, like coach, I think was they, someone just found a bunch of coach bags, like in a dumpster, like Mm -hmm. Victoria's secret, like burning things. And there's all these issues of brands doing that to get rid of their excess inventory because they don't want the middle class, like having access to it. So really I think (laughs) trying to help brands move their excess inventory, you know, get them get the excess inventory into hands of consumers still in a way that feels like exciting and good for all of them. So I think we really try to keep keep it, you know, curated, keep it high quality, everything's on sale all the time so it feels really exciting for the customers still. And then just I really like my intention is really to help brands move through their excess inventory because it is an issue. Like what is the exit strategy? Where does it go? And a lot of it just sits around. And I know you talk about this in a a lot of the podcasts too. um, There's a lot of of merchandise being made right now. So it's kind of like, where does it go? And so for us to be able to offer an exit (laughs) strategy for brands is really my intention. And on the flip side of that, we get to offer cool products to customers on sale. And so maybe in turn that inspires customers to shop less at fast fashion because they're able to find that Rachel Antonoff top at half price. So maybe that feels more affordable and they could invest in pieces rather than turning to fast fashion. I mean, I love
0: that. Have you ever been approached by a brand where you were like, no? Yeah,
4: definitely. I think that there are certain brands that don't make sense for us. And I'm, I'm kind of trying to figure out the balance mm-hmm. of, um, of maybe like indie truly like indie brands that are, you know, really like thoughtful and doing these really cool things that are maybe a, a little bit higher price versus like a lower price, more fashiony brand And so I think we're, I'm feeling that too, like the competition with like Shein, because I can't sell swimsuits on my website to save my life. And that's because people are buying these $5 swimsuits from these, you know, (sighs) cheap, cheap, fast fashion brands. And so it's a little bit, I would say the um, retail landscape is a little bit tricky right now for that reason. I think everyone's, probably feeling that a little bit. And I definitely feel, feel that pressure. I think that because we are doing something super new, um, a lot of people come to our website and they're like, what is this? This is just another boutique. Why is everything on sale? Like I don't get it. And I, and that goes back to, (laughs) I, I don't think a lot of people know what off price is. And so, I'm like, no, these discounts Mm -hmm. are really great. And we're an off price retailer. We're not trying to hide it. I'm super proud of what we're doing and why we're doing it. So I think communicating that to the customer is a little bit tricky. And then there's always pushback. Well, these are still too expensive. And then I'm like, how cheap do you want this stuff to be? Like, Uh. this is these are great deals so um I think that's that's a bit tricky in the current landscape yeah
0: I uh, I feel like no one can compete with Shein and it it really frightens me that maybe the prices that Shein offers are going to become what we all think are the price of things and like there's no returning from that you know I thought, like, some of the pricing that you would see at, like, say, Forever 21 or H&M was pretty alarming and was making people a lot more price sensitive, if you will. But then I go onto the Shein website and I practically faint when I see the prices there. (laughs) And, I mean,
1: unfortunately, what
0: that's just doing is empowering people to hoard, to hoard all this cheap stuff that they don't need. And, like – I don't know how we dig ourselves out of that. It's really scary to me. Every time I see a post on social media that is anti-sheen, a gazillion people have to pop up and be like, yeah, but it's so cheap. You know? I know. That's why I love it's it. So and I'm like, yeah. It's so crazy. I know. I, I, uh, I don't know what we do there, you know?
4: Yeah. I was at a bachelorette party recently. I'm, 31 years old everyone in the group was 31 and there was a theme for one of the days on it was like a boat party and the theme was um disco cowgirl and so all of these girls that are my age and a lot of them work in retail had bought outfits from sheen and wore them on the boat for this specific theme. And the next day I was one of the last people to leave the house. So I was like cleaning up and I was taking the trash out. And I noticed that everyone just took off their clothes and threw them in the trash. And I was (gasps) like, I'm, I'm bothered. I was like, I don't know how like conscious 31 year olds could do something like that. Like these girls work in retail and they know. And I was just, Uh, I was shocked.
0: Wow. I'm so sad. That is, that is rough, but like, hi, welcome to Halloween. A shit ton of people are going to do that after Halloween. I see, I mean, I worked in an office most, my most recent job, I worked in an office where I would see people getting huge boxes from Shein or Fashion Nova, from their vacation. And I know that they wore those clothes and then trashed them, like because they were yeah. just for the vacation or just for the bachelorette party or whatever they were doing. And like that stuff's not disposable <laughs> at all. It, it's such, uh, it's one of those things where I'm yeah. like, for all the people who are working so hard to do good things, and then you see that going on, you're like, how how do we keep powering through and how do we change minds? How do we make
4: that never happen again? I don't know yet.
0: <laughs> I don't have the answer. I don't
4: know yet either. I know it's so disappointing, but I would love for, you know, I and I – I'm almost, I can't be surprised that the conversation has gone this way because it's true that, that, that is something that I think we're competing with. And I think to your point about Nordstrom rack, having those cheap fashion brands, like that has to be what it is. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, none of us can escape it. They're making things, thinking, making things complicated for a lot of different retailers. So I can only hope that by offering discounts. So all of our discounts are like at least 30% off everything on our website up to 70 or 80% off. So it's really, you know, great deals on our website. And I hope that people can recognize that and kind of look to our website to shop for deals on more thoughtful products than turning to fast fashion. That would be my one true hope. Like if I had someone come to me and say, I was going to look for an outfit on Shein, but instead I was like, I'll find something on sale at Cara Kara. I would like shed a happy tear.
0: Me too. Actually, that would be amazing. (laughs) So I have questions about how the pandemic has affected the business because Last year, when we recorded the episode about Off Price, I guess it was two episodes, it was early in the pandemic, right? Like, we were like, any minute now, this is going to be over. And a lot of analysts were like, this is going to be a gold mine for Off Price because retailers canceled like everything. A lot of it was already made and the the, I, the thinking there was that like Nordstrom Rack and TJ Maxx and Ross and all of them were going to swoop in and buy all that inventory. I don't know if it actually happened because I I had been like, I should go to those stores and see what I see there, but then I didn't. <laughs> and I'm, I'm regretful yeah. because I really want to know the answer. But I mean, did you find that you were getting a lot more, I don't, interest and in, like access to stuff that maybe you didn't have before?
4: Definitely. I was getting tons of brands reaching out to me every day. They were telling other brands about us. I was getting constantly like, I would almost use the word bombarded by people wanting (laughs) to work with us and give us their inventory because all of a sudden, you know, everyone was panicked. It was crazy. And they not only are they sitting on their own inventory, it's you know stores weren't taking their orders or sending it back to them and so everyone was kind of in this state where oh my god what are we going to do with all of this stuff and a lot of them were coming to me and at that point we had we had just launched in September 2019 so the pandemic started in March 2020 so we were like barely 6 months old and I've never, you know, we're super small startup, we don't have any venture capital money or anything like that. And so for me, I didn't have the financial capabilities to be able to support all of these brands, even though I would have loved to, but it got me really thinking, like, how can I Support these brands, right? Like at the end of the day, like I said, my intention is to help these brands move through their access inventory. So I felt Mm -hmm. especially compelled. I was like, this is a crisis, like, what are we going to do? And so I started doing flash sales on my website, um, which actually ended up being really great. And that like I mentioned, too, I used to work at Rulo lodging flash sale. So I was like, why don't we bring that back? <laughs> why don't we try to make that cool again? <laughs> and it kind of made sense for us in a way that I actually wasn't super picky about the brands that were in the flash sale, wasn't picky about the products they put in. I was like, let's go. Whoever wants to be in it, whatever inventory you <laughs> want to put in it, I will put it on my website. And so we kind of took the website from, at that point, we probably had like 300 products. And I probably added in like a 1000 to 1500 new products during the flash sale, like all these really cool new brands. (laughs) And customers loved it. They were like, shopping that was that week the first time I ever did this flash sale that was the best sales we've ever had like I've never been able to compete with that and it was this really special moment in time because all of the brands were kind of coming together and we were getting a lot of support like a lot of people were posting about it customers were posting about it and we um did you know give back components we were donating a certain percentage to COVID relief fund and I think just to see community come together in that way was super cool. And it was a really great opportunity in a way that I was able to help the brands, you know, kind of move through a lot of that inventory um, in a way that made sense for all of us. And we still do flash sales. So we'll do them every once in a while. It's, it's definitely like a lot of work for like a short, flash sale, but it's cool because some brands maybe don't want to be on sale all the time and they just want mm-hmm. to do a flash sale. They'll want to put something in for one week. And I think there is still something exciting about that for customers. And there's a reason why like Brulala La La and Guilt were so successful and people were setting their alarms and, you know, logging in at certain times to shop different items. So Yeah, I think that that was something really cool that the pandemic kind of pushed me to do. And then I think from there, it it was super interesting because we went from all these brands having all this inventory, then everyone slashed their orders for fall. So yep. fall came around and I was having a really hard time getting anything. And I'm like, who has candles? I'm like, someone give me candles. I know one of you has <laughs> them. Like I need them for holiday <laughs> gifting. You know, just certain things that are usually not hard to get was like impossible. And it's because also with that the trends were changing. People were buying all this home stuff and there was a lot more um, fashion in the overstock market because people weren't buying new clothes. And so I think those things have been really interesting to navigate. And really one of the biggest problems with off price is just the consistency of when products are available. It's, it's, there's, it's unpredictable, right? When a Uh brand is going to come to me and say, I have this really cool, like of the moment item excess overstock we're changing the packaging we have all these units and i'm like amazing but i might never get that product again and so it's really hard when you have a product that sells really well and you can't chase the inventory because that's all that there is and you can't like that's, I think how TJ Maxx got themselves into that place of like, we're going to recut that because it did well. And in mm-hmm. a sen- in a way it makes sense for them. And like we mentioned, as far as like margin building, like you can definitely cut costs that way, get bigger margins, grow your business. And that I believe is how they ended up there. But definitely with the ebbs and flows of the pandemic and the different sales trends, it's been incredibly inconsistent about the products I'm getting. I feel that we're getting back to homeostasis. <laughs> like I think things are starting to normalize a little bit. So um, yeah, it's it's definitely it's, it's super tricky to navigate. And then now it's like, the issue with the ports and every, everyone's like, can't get their inventory right now. So God, yeah. uh, I luckily it doesn't, it hasn't affected me. I, I feel like, and that's the thing, right? Like I'm saying it was hard to get certain products, but there there's never no products that everyone, there's always right. brands that have access inventory. So there's always product For me to get, it might not be the product that I want, and that's the reality of off-price. And so that's been the challenge of, like, kind of balancing that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I mean, it'd be interesting to see... Because I was thinking about you this morning. I was in a meeting with a client and they were just talking about all their supply chain issues, which is, like, all anybody can talk about right now because it's really scary. And I kind of feel like you're going to see a ton of brands reaching out to you around February because they're going to have, like, pushed out inventory, pushed out inventory push it out and then they're going to be like uh shit this isn't like relevant anymore for what we're doing we already have like spring stuff coming but who knows because the supply chain stuff could go on indefinitely like i don't see a solution on the horizon right now
4: i don't see a solution either it's so chaotic but i (laughs) i feel the same i think january or february i'm I'm going to be bombarded a bit again. And I think it could be a really good thing for us. I think we might be able to get some really cool brands again or some really, you know, great inventory from brands that maybe haven't had it for us in a while. So I'm kind of Mm -hmm. excited to see Mm -hmm. what comes from that, even though it is unfortunate. But at the same time, it's like I have to be super mindful of like seasonality too just because of, you know, I can't buy a lot of stuff and hold it for next year, which is what a lot of like TJ Maxx or Nordstrom Rack would do is they'll, they'll buy stuff up at the end of the season and they'll kind of just hold it. And it, you know, holds up the cash flow of the certain items in a way that like, I'm not big enough to do right now. So it'll, it'll be interesting to kind of see what, what type of products they have at that time.
0: So what, do you want to do next with Kara? Cara? I mean, first off, how many
4: employees do you have? We have two employees. I have... (laughs) Okay, so you're a small business. We're very small. (laughs) Um, It's myself. And I have two girls that work in our office in LA, Kathy and Jasmine, and they're both incredible. Um, One of them does operations, and the other one does graphic design and creative. So it's kind of the three of us really moving things forward. So
0: what would you like to do next? Like, how do you see the brand growing?
4: Yes. Yeah, so I think for us, growth really looks like bringing on more product. So I feel that for us, more product, sorry, the dogs are barking. There it goes. No knew it was going to happen. Luckily, my headphones are still going <laughs> strong though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> we knew okay, it was a matter so of time. <laughs> is it, can you hear them barking or is it okay? Okay. Okay, cool. So for us, I think we need to bring on new brands, more inventory. I think what I really found during the flash sale was that one of the reasons why it performed so well was because we were able to have so many products on the website, right? I don't want to get to a place where we're a treasure hunt, but I definitely think there's a lot of opportunity to mm-hmm. grow mm-hmm. what we're offering. So we definitely want to explore that and grow, grow the brand list, grow the inventory. There's a lot of brands I would love to work with. And aside from that, I, re- I see a lot of opportunity in a store. I would love to open a retail store, whether it's a pop-up, or a permanent space. Uh, I would love for customers to be able to come in and shop and see the products in person and really see the quality of them. I think we could do off price in such a different way than TJ Maxx um, or Nordstrom Rack. Like I, I find their stores very overwhelming. And I think we could do it in a really clean, exciting, fun way. And yeah. I feel like that's a huge opportunity for us. That's definitely something I've kind of got totally. on the back burner. Um, yeah. I think that those two things are, are it. We're kind of going mm-hmm. after like slow and steady growth. I'm still trying to build brand awareness. So we've been around since september 2019 so it's been a little bit over 2 years we're we're still getting bigger we're getting a lot more instagram followers and things like that so kind of trying to keep that going and then we do have a rebrand on the horizon which should be really exciting as well ooh yeah.
0: Exciting. Just like Facebook. I hear they're rebranding too.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like Facebook. <laughs> Who we, should, we do not aspire to be like. <laughs> <laughs> good, <Yeah>. good.
0: <laughs> hey, everyone. I'm so excited to announce that one of my favorite brands, New Works, is an official sponsor of Close Horse. I've been a fan of New for a long time because they have unique prints created by some of my favorite artists. If you're looking for an article of clothing that you can proudly outfit repeat for years and years and still receive compliments from strangers everywhere you go, New is the brand for you. Seriously, one of my all-time favorite New purchases is the Dahlia mock neck dress in the ash and chess print, Better Days. Everywhere I go, someone is blown away. I may have recently received a free breakfast taco from a barista just for telling them where I got my dress. I've also found that while all of the New Works prints are unique conversation starters, all of the pieces themselves are easy to mix and match into an almost infinite array of outfits. Dress them up, dress them down. The outfit repeating potential here is massive. The silhouettes are designed to make you feel good, happy, and just generally full of positive vibes. And Newworks offers sizes extra small through 5X with plans to continue to expand sizing. And oh yeah, they make adorable kids clothes too. Well, now that we've covered all of the aesthetic reasons I love New let's get into the serious stuff. In a world where it's progress, not perfection, Newworks is constantly striving to do better and better, always with an eye on progress when it comes to sustainability. All Newworks products are made by a small team in limited batches in California. You won't see any ridiculous waste over here. In fact, the company is constantly working to reduce their waste. As part of this commitment, Newworks has been offering packs of scraps for all of you crafty types to turn into your own cool, unique projects. And they even sold a few zero waste pieces recently, which was really. So cool and something you just don't see out there as much as you should, right? On top of that, New now offers Full Circle, a resale platform for New products because the idea is that these clothes should remain in circulation and be worn just as much as possible for as long as possible. Newworks is a woman owned, women run business. There are no venture capitalists or big investors involved, just a small team of incredibly nice people. And they're working hard to do the best they can for the planet and its people. Everyone involved in creating Newworks products are paid a living wage. And Newworks tries to source all of their materials in the USA and work only with incredibly nice people. Their hope is that every Newworks purchase will be a shiny gem in your closet that you will cherish forever or hand down to someone you love. Once again, I'm just so proud and so honored to have this amazing brand as a sponsor of my work here at CloseHorse. Horse. Go see why I love them so much at newworks.com or find them on Instagram at newworks. And that's new, N-O-O. So one thing that you and I bonded over when we were preparing for this is that you and I both, we, you know, we worked in the girl boss era. We have survived the hashtag girl boss, right? Um, And I think, I think, I mean, I don't want to like take words out of your mouth, but I know that I came out of that, like, I don't know, just so much more educated about how to be a leader, how to be a mentor, how to be a better person to the people who work for and with me, right? What have you learned from surviving the girl boss era? Oh man,
4: what haven't I learned from that era? I, <laughs> it, was, right. it was hard. It was hard. <laughs> I definitely learned what not to do, how I think, unfortunately, I learned a lot from their mistakes and a lot of the mistakes were made very publicly. Um, so I think also internally, like so much mismanagement, so much toxicity. Um, it, it really, it did not feel good to work there. And I think outwardly facing a lot, they, they built like such strong brand loyalty and had all these fans and this cult following. And I think when, a lot of that became exposed. It, it was shocking for a lot of the people that were following these brands because they put on this face of like women empowerment mm-hmm. and mental health. And in reality, there was a lot of hip- hypocrisy in what they were preaching, you know, that wasn't actually what was happening internally. So I, I think for me in launching my own brand, I was like, I, I'm not, doing any of that. I'm doing things a hundred percent different, you know, as far as (laughs) diversity in photography, that was a big thing I took away from my last job. It was a, a real struggle to get diverse bodies, diverse skin colors in the photography. And it was something that I really, I would fight for. And I they wouldn't do it. And so that was something that was really important to me when I started my own brand. I also think just the mismanagement and the preaching of like, this is such an amazing place to work. You should be thankful to work here. Um, (laughs) That all like does not sit well with me. (laughs) I'm like, They're like, you should, it's not about the money. We're not motivated by money. You're just so lucky to work here. And, you know, that I'm like, I would, like, no way. That's so toxic. That, and that one
0: is so common. Like, the, like, we're on a mission. This isn't about the money. And you're like, this is a company that sells things. We are here to make money. Like, don't take, money off the table and make me feel ashamed for wanting to pay my bills. Yeah, Like that is one, I mean, I was telling you one of the, uh, girl boss companies that I worked for allegedly the CEO was only paying herself $30,000 a year, which I find impossible to believe and would shame me for being like, can we get health insurance? Like, well, don't you care about the mission? I'm like, I care about being able to see a doctor. I care about getting healthcare and not going bankrupt. Like, don't act like we're not here making money every day. Oh my
4: gosh. (laughs) Yeah, that's so wild. Don't act
0: like this isn't a business. This is a business. This isn't like a volunteer organization. And when you're a buyer,
4: you're thinking about this. Mm hmm. Yep. And when you're managing the product and the inventory and the sales, you see the numbers. So you're like, I know how much the company is making and I know how much I'm directly contributing to that. So for them to then be like, we don't have the money it's like yep. well then where is the money going because i see it i know the margins we're making and i know the volume we're doing i know roughly the salary of everyone who's working here totally like
0: that's the thing it's like don't insult my intelligence you know i know what what how much money we're bringing in every week here you know and if we are somehow spending all that money on other things that i don't know about i'm concerned so there's a problem here no matter what. Like either we're really bad at managing our money, which to be fair has happened to a lot of these girl boss companies. But on the other hand, maybe we're just being greedy and pretending that we're on some mission that should somehow b- make us not want to get paid. Um, but somehow this mission involves selling lots of fast fashion and things like that. Like I, I it, it's so ridiculous. I, I don't know about you, but like I feel like it took me a few years to really sit down and admit to myself that I had been traumatized by these jobs, that I had PTSD that was affecting my ability to feel good about myself and to make good decisions at work.
4: Yeah. I think a lot of my coworkers, we definitely have felt that way. And us. Having, you know, talking about it is very therapeutic and to know that uh, everyone felt that way too. And it took a long time for people to speak up and feel empowered to be able to say like, even to be able to write a glass door review, like everyone was too scared to do that. We were all so terrified of you know, losing our jobs or being punished in different ways or being bullied by these girls. And there was no accountability. I think that's one of the biggest issues is with the girl boss era is that they weren't being held accountable for their actions. There was just absolutely no accountability. Anyone that worked under them that behaved the same way as them. Um, also no accountability for them. So you get these leadership teams that are doing really inappropriate things and they're not getting in any trouble for it because who's going to... Who's gonna cross them? They're the leader of the company. So everyone was just too terrified all the time to speak up And when you did speak up, it was kind of shunned or you would get bullied or you would not get promoted It was definitely looked down upon for Speaking up.
0: Yeah, totally. I was thinking about the one company I worked for and I finally I mean, you know how it is when you're like I hate this job so much. It's making me sick. I I you start fantasizing about quitting right I finally after a lot of just so much so much time thinking about it, talking to my husband about what we were going to do financially, I finally was like I'm going to quit this job. And so I sit down with the CEO and I'm like, "Listen, I think that it's time for me to move on. I want to talk about what an exit plan would look like, how long that would take to find a replacement on board them. You know, I'm really committed to all the work we have been doing here." And she was such a, just a toxic narcissist that she, all she could say was, that's good because I've been thinking about firing you anyway. Oh my God.
4: I wow. Know. I know. <laughs> like what? So <laughs> unprofessional. And that's, I think a, a lot of them never had any training on how nope. to be professional. It's just all this manipulation, like weird feedback, like, and, and that's. You, who would say that?
0: (laughs) I know. And I was like, what? I just had my performance review and it was great. (laughs) Like, you're sending me mixed signals here. I mean, in time I could step back and be like, that was that person just being really unprofessional and being really cruel to be cruel and not being experienced as a leader. Right. Like it yes, wasn't absolutely right. I mean, it's still hurtful and it's not okay, but like, I can see that that's why that was happening. I mean, that was just like every day of my life at that company. But I, th- I, I, get really I mean I get sad about the girl boss era for a multitude of reasons but one is that every time one of these stories about a disastrous girl boss comes out which is like you know regular they just keep coming it f- proves to people specifically men who control a lot of the investment money out there in the world it proves to them that women can't be trusted to run companies and it makes it harder for women to get investment and start companies of their own. And that really bums me out. Like it's, I mean, I hate to say this, but it's just not fair. Right. Yeah. But they totally. already thought we were all too emotional and bad at business and now they've got their proof and I oh, hate yeah. it so
4: much. I know me too. I feel like the people like us who've come out of that and are doing things differently are Unfortunately facing the consequences of that and you know, like I have I've been struggling trying to get funding for my company and it's like is it Tied to that is it because i'm a woman running a retail business, you know, like am I being stereotyped with the Girl bosses of the world and like unfortunately that probably has something to do with it Totally
0: Totally. I mean, I feel like there was a time where it was a lot easier as a woman to get money for your startup because it felt trendy. Because this is when Girl Boss was like really heating up and becoming like a brand in itself. And then it all came crashing down, and everybody was suddenly like, I, for one of my jobs, we were actually actively fundraising and like we would go into these meetings with VC. It would be all men, all men of a certain age, all white men. And they would be like, okay, but do you have like, do you, do you guys know business and math and be like, yeah, like I have 20 years of experience or like I have an MBA, like the women in the room would be really, really smart. And it would be like, yeah, but like, have you thought about like finding someone different to lead your financials and it was always like oh you mean you want us to bring a man the next time and when we would do that it would be a totally different conversation but the most important thing about that conversation that was different is that they wouldn't talk to us at all they would just talk to the dude that we brought along and it's like girl boss just reinforced that like you can't give women money because they'll squander it and be mean and you know it's uh, none of that is true it's just unfortunate that the the headline names of the girl boss era were, they were flawed and they were yeah. inexperienced. And like, you know, I can say this, like having worked at Nasty Gal, no one should have been giving Sophia all that money. She wasn't ready for it, you know? Mm, yeah, totally. They could have given it to someone who had more ex- business experience.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, unfortunately, the way that all played out with, you know, not just Sophia, but there's been countless women
1: who have been
4: exposed for mismanaging businesses for, you know, spending money on all the wrong things and creating these toxic work environments. And I think when we really saw that all play out and we got all of those fake apologies that looked identical (laughs) to each other, like that didn't help. (laughs) And I think that they were given an opportunity to kind of redeem themselves. And a lot of them couldn't even do that. And I think like, fortunately there's enough of us who kind of lived through that and experienced it and feel that disappointment, but still are going after the things we're passionate about and creating companies and doing things the right way that hopefully will be able to turn that around like I don't know how long that will take or kind of what that looks like but I I feel that the generation of leaders that's coming out of that Will do things differently
0: That's my hope I feel I feel really optimistic about it because I think I mean and I was telling you this before that like by seeing all this stuff go horribly awry I have learned from those mistakes that aren't even mine Like I learned more from that than almost in a lot of the trainings and stuff I've had, you know, I could see why they played out the way they did and how they could be better. And I think, you know, another thing that really struck me, I mean, seriously, from the first week I walked into Nasty Gal, for example, was that at that point in at least there, and I feel like this is pretty standard for a lot of the girl boss companies, there was No one was thinking about developing talent or mentoring younger women or training them or anything. And so I inherited a team of like associate and assistant buyers who literally didn't know anything about buying. They didn't know anything about retail math. They didn't understand assortment planning. They didn't know a lot of the terminology. All they knew was like how to pick out cute things. And mm-hmm. it was just like, you guys don't have any transferable skills. Like what an epic fail for this company to not be teaching all these talented people how to, you know, and helping them grow. Like I, I still think back to that and like how shocking it was to me.
4: Yeah, totally. It's so shocking. It, really like no systems no processes in regards to development nope. and i think a lot of that like at the company i worked at was because they grew so fast so they had these girls come in that ended up in these really high leadership roles that had never worked anywhere else and their only experience was working totally. with the founder of our company who's super toxic and i'm i'm sure that you have like you know, things that have stuck with you. And I have so many things that have stuck with me from just the, the feedback I received and how, how it was given to me that it's like, well, that, that was the problem. And then that they weren't held accountable because she protected them and she glamorized mm-hmm. this workplace where it was like, we we you know all women but it was like actually owned by men and we all reported into men but like outwardly facing no one would know that and then it was you know I care about mental health like let's glamorize it and pushing out these shirts that say like I cry at work and it's like but should we be crying at work like are you glamorizing a toxic work environment is that what's going on here and Seriously. <laughs> it's just, oh. it's, it was crazy. Like, it, and it was there the whole time, you know, like, I also remember when, like, one time I had gone to a meeting um, with the founder of the company, I would have to like show her everything I wanted to bring on and, really could not give me any clear feedback or direction would just be like, that's not right. Or that's not on brand, Uh, but could never really tell me why. And so one time I brought her this like assortment I was like, so excited about. And she's like, I don't like it. And I'm like, why don't you like it? And she's like, you merchandised it too well. It looks too good. Like you did it too well. And I'm like, you're criticizing me because I did my job too well. (laughs) Like, and you know, luckily I was Older, And I had worked at several other companies and I had thick skin and I'm also very like direct person. So it was, you know, for me, it, it definitely like hurt my feelings all the time, but it wasn't like detrimental to me in the way that it could be to like younger employees who are getting this like mixed feedback and weird you know, you did your job too well. Like we're here, we do our best, but we're not perfect. And you merchandise that it's like too good. And you know, it needs to be a little sloppier and you're like, what, what the hell?
0: What? That makes no sense. I'm getting like a headache thinking about it. Cause this is just the story you just told is so familiar to me, you know? And like, I think You know, one of the things you learn as you grow in your career, as you grow as a person, as you just grow up in general, is like sometimes you need to learn from someone wiser than you. And I think that was something that wasn't really happening in the girl boss era with a lot of these leaders is that they never said, I want to get better at being a leader. I'm going to learn about how to do that. It just was like, no, like I'm too busy getting famous on Instagram or something.
4: Yeah, and I think that's part of why they felt like they had no roles, because at the same time, you have this influencer culture that's on the rise, and they were kind of the first influencers in a way, like Sophia was the same, you know, we were all looking to her as this You know, she's so cool. Like, she dresses so cool. Everything she does is incredible. And so I think they use that as kind of protection. And then, you know, like, I, without Mm -hmm. me as the face of this company, this company is nothing. So then you have these women that aren't held accountable because they do have these powerful platforms and they feel like because they're being real on their platform. And so then they go to work and they're like, well, I'm just being real. I'm slamming doors and I'm crying (laughs) in meetings. And this is just me being real. And my Instagram followers (laughs) love it. Why don't you?
0: Oh, I know. I know. I mean, I will say one of the worst parts about working for one of these girl boss companies, and I don't know if you've experienced this, is you would like go to market and meet with vendors or just be out with friends who ask, you know, new people who like ask you where you worked and you would tell them and they would be like, Oh my God, that's my dream job. Like, how is it to work with so-and-so I'm obsessed with them and you'd have to pretend that it was awesome, but you would be like, it actually is impossible and makes me sick. And I just like, don't want anyone to ever feel that way about working with me.
4: Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I think the girls that work with me at Cara Cara, they're like, I can't imagine that. And, I'll, and it, it'll make you crazy. Like when I worked there for a little bit, I felt crazy. And yeah. I was like, why do I feel this way? What's wrong with me? But it was really just a product of being in that environment and feeling really you know unsupported and feeling bullied and feeling like yeah to everyone else you have to smile and be like it's amazing to work here everyone's so great and fun and funny and you're like really on the inside it's people tearing other people down and just being nasty right and being
0: like it's a culture of fear because everybody's like am I gonna lose my job at any moment you know, I, right. I feel like that was another thing in a lot of places I worked where people were so afraid that they might not have a job mm-hmm. in a week or something. And oh yeah, they would, it made people behave badly.
4: Oh, yeah. And then, you know, when these companies, obviously it's clear from what we're saying, like super mismanaged, right? Like where was HR? Nobody knows. But there were those times when you would come in and oh they would like God. randomly let all right. these people go. And you're like, what? And then oh. the next thing they're doing, they're like reading their Slack messages and you're like, why, who, what's going on here? <laughs> like, how's this That happening? is so and... fucked up. Oh my God. <laughs> no. My
0: boss at it's the so one bad. really toxic company would send us like task, texts like late Friday night, like we're going to have a meeting first thing Monday morning of the leadership team and you should be prepared to take a salary cut. So all weekend we'd oh all be God. like, shit, how are we going to pay our bills, right? And then Monday morning it would be like not even mentioned.
4: <laughs> oh my God, that's so cruel. <laughs> it was cruel. Just, like
0: so messed up. Yeah, just so much, of that, so much of that. um Um It's really evil, and like these are things that I feel like I wouldn't even ever think of doing at work. But I now know for sure why you shouldn't do those things. Just in case I was ever tempted to behave that way, like oh my gosh, you just just can't. You work with people. Oh yeah, they're people.
4: You know, right? My one of my favorites too was um, our founder would like walk around the office like at like 9 a.m. and she'd be like I'm taking roll call like who's ever in their seats gets a bonus like whoever got here early and she would do the same thing at like (gasps) 6 30 p.m. she would be like oh I see you you're here you you're here and one time she came up to me and she's like oh I'm surprised to see you here did you run out of class pass credits and I was like oh (gasps) my god what (laughs) wow Wow, so, hashtag
0: girl boss everyone
4: right there. <laughs> yeah, um. I I was shocked. I was like, okay, so now and and the thing is is like I always got my work done. Like I they I was always getting promoted. Everyone in upper management was always like you have the best channel in the company. Like I knew I was doing a really good job and I just am, you know, like an efficient worker. I don't believe in sitting in your seat just to be there, right? Like I know I was like it's six PM I can go home now and so I think there's a lot of like old values that you would think these companies maybe since they're like new and like startup-y would have maybe not you know believed in but they were very much there like the nine to six mentality a lot of meetings just like really a lot of more like old-fashioned ways of thinking mm-hmm yeah yeah
0: I do think one important part of girl boss culture is that there's always a lot of meetings.
4: Oh yeah. So many meetings to hear everyone talk.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So many meetings. It's like when I stopped working for girl boss companies, I was like, Oh, we spend so much time at our desks doing work. This is amazing. (laughs) Yeah.
4: Yeah. It's like, I, I also think that it's that, you know, on TikTok, how it's like that. Everyone's talking about like being the main character and having a god complex. Like that's yes. it. Like they just they have to be the main character, and they did have a god complex. And it's you know having meanings just so that they could hear themselves talk. And people, I found that there were certain people at the company who had gotten pushed up and protected, right? They had never worked anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And for them to cover that, they didn't really know what they were doing. They would poke holes in what everyone else was doing. And kind of just (laughs) their time causing trouble. And you're like, what are you doing? Like, why are you making, there's like, just like putting like obstacles in front of you, like every foot. And you're like, why are you doing this? And they're just trying to take attention off the fact that they don't know what they're doing. Oh my God classic i had not even thought of that but i a few
0: years ago i was like sort of like analyzing like the characters per se the character types that i had worked with at different jobs and that was a character that kept emerging that the, the yes. like po- hole poker
4: <laughs> yes <laughs> literally my least favorite person at the company because you're just it's just like you're trying to walk down the street and they're just like sticking their leg out to trip you and they're you're just like why are you doing this we all work for the same company like we all want the same things i know totally
0: totally but that is like what the girl boss culture was like and i'm sure people are listening to us talk and they're like well i don't work for a girl boss company and i don't see this i see this stuff happening too and i'm like yeah true but the thing that the girl boss was selling was that everything was different and better right because there was a girl boss and it it wasn't and it and exactly for me it felt like the disappointment felt like a betrayal and it just made everything twice as painful because it was like I, I wanted to someday be an executive and lead my own company and all of these things. And then I see this playing out and I'm like, I don't know if I can. Like mm-hmm. maybe maybe we don't get to do that because apparently we make the company miserable and we run it into the ground and we can't apologize sincerely on the internet and all of these other things, you know? It's definitely something for me that I'm still like thinking through, right?
4: Right. I think for me it pushed me where I was like, I can't take this much longer. And so (laughs) I I, as I'm looking for an exit strategy for inventory, I was like, what is my exit strategy? You know? (laughs) And so I it kind of pushed me and I was like, I found this issue. Like I was I always was like, I want to do something in the industry. I don't know what it is, but I want to do something, you know, for the greater good of like the retail industry. And I want it to be a white space. And then this kind of like landed in my lap and I was unhappy at work. And I was like, you know, I could be doing this for these people or I could leave here and do this for myself and do things differently. So I think for me, it was like, I felt confident in my skill set and, you know, my leadership capabilities and like still... Being able to see their issues and be like, I'm going to do this differently. And so it kind of, I do think that it helped me in the sense that it pushed me forward because I was like, I'm not going to keep doing this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that. That's what happened. You know, like what a happy ending to the story.
4: Right. Yes. Me too. Me too.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much, Rachel. This was so fun. Um, it's also just like fun to talk to other people who are girl boss survivors and see what they're doing.
4: <laughs> totally. <laughs> and be I know excited. we do need, yeah, we need um, a, a therapy group. Like we all meet Seriously. up and talk about it. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it is really, really interesting and unique. And I think that. You and I worked at very similar companies at similar times, but at the same time, different companies, um, mm-hmm. and, but situations so parallel, like almost totally. identical. So it's, it is a little bit shocking to think about how many companies this was happening at and how many other people have been through this. And it is really, um, you know, I think it's great to, to be able to talk about it and shed some light on that era and how it shaped us but yeah definitely super interesting
0: yeah totally totally and i hope that everybody who hears this it's it's going to inspire them to be better leaders be mentors expect better from their leaders and mentors because i think that like one of the one of the failings of girl boss is that you know you're supposed to like any good employee, if you will, is supposed to be able to manage up, meaning like tell their manager what they need from them and get it. And there was just like not, you couldn't do that. Like absolutely right. could not do that. And I think that is just like one of the many failings of that culture. And I hope that we can all hear this and know that moving forward, like if we're not getting what we, we need to grow, then we need to demand it or leave because we deserve right. better. We're the leaders of tomorrow. We're the leaders of now, you know?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And that's all it takes is just us standing up to, to these brands for what we need. And I think luckily with, what has happened with the rise and fall of them. People are a lot more receptive to that. And I think a lot of companies are fearful now of like that happening. Like they know the power that the internet holds and the media websites and, you know, if if they're treating their employees bad, th- it will come out. And I think that's been proven. And so luckily, um, there's, there's a little bit of more leverage now on the employee side, which is great.
0: I know. I love it. And I just can't emphasize enough the importance of writing Glassdoor reviews. So I actually was going to apply. I mean, I told you this already. I was going to apply for a job where you worked. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to read the glass door reviews. And there were only a few, but they were really bad they reminded me so much of my own current nightmare situation at that time that i was like nope i'm just changing i'm just changing brand names i'm going to be working in the same place you know and so i skipped it but that stuck in my head as like a moment that was really helpful for me and at that point i was working for a really toxic startup and we didn't have any glass door reviews and so people thought we were like it was this heroic environment where everything was awesome and great and what a dream job and I realized that we needed to protect other people from walking into that and everyone was fearful because our CEO was really vindictive, uh, not not a good, even-keeled leader, and would certainly, because our team's so small, figure out who was writing the Glassdoor reviews. So we worked together and all wrote Glassdoor reviews at the same time, like literally sat at a bar with our laptops and everybody wrote them.
4: That's amazing. A lot of that kind of teams coming together. I know, I know, and I think
0: that you, when you feel unempowered, when you feel helpless, and you feel like you're being defeated in an environment like this, the best thing you can do is work with the other people around you to make it better, or you know, make sure the world knows it's a bad place to work. I know that. Uh, It had an effect on that company, and they had a hard time hiring people. And then they were having people write fake reviews—classic. Like, there's all this. There's a classic like uh, checklist of toxic work environments. It's like, okay, now get everybody to write fake nice reviews. You know, like that's part of it. Oh my gosh! Um, But I know, so classic, right? The playbook, the girl boss clip playbook. Um, but you know. I can't emphasize enough how important community and your coworkers and organizing and taking collective action is in these scenarios.
4: Yeah, definitely. Because if you're feeling that way, everyone is.
0: Yeah, totally. You totally are. Everyone is, right? Like, it's not just you. I mean, even talking, everything you're telling me, I'm like, I experienced that and we didn't even work at the same place. Like, these are universal realities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. This was really fun. Oh, my
4: gosh. Thank you. This has been a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much to Rachel for taking the time to talk to me. Fun fact, Rachel found Close Wars via some friends who were talking about it, and then she reached out to me, which is is so cool. I love hearing that people listen to Close Horse, obviously. Please go check out Cara Cara. Rachel has an exclusive offer for members of the Close Horse community. You can receive 20% off with discount code Horse. I'll share that in the show notes. I was just checking out Cara Cara this morning and Rachel has put together a great assortment of really nice gifts. From really nice brands. And don't worry, I know you've been worrying, she was able to get some of those candles. <laughs> um, I wanted to wrap this episode up with a long story about my experiences with the girl boss era, but unfortunately, we're running out of time here. It's only a matter of minutes before our cat Hutch begins his daily tradition of howling out the window at a barn cat. We call B dubs because he's black and white. They do this every day. It takes an hour. It's so loud. They just yell at each other. Hashtag cat life. So I have to wrap this up now. Here's what I'm going to say. Go listen to the Girl Boss series on the department. I'll link to that in the show notes. You'll hear a lot of my thoughts and experiences on what I've learned from the Girl Boss era. Go check it out. We're taking a little bit of a holiday moving mega busy work break from the department, but we'll be back in a few weeks with a series on the great resignation and hopefully the end of hustle culture. So trendy right now. As I've been reading about all of this as part of my research, I've definitely found myself feeling so hopeful that we are at a major turning point in a lot of different aspects of our lives. We're demanding better from our employers. We're ending toxic hustle culture bullshit at our jobs. We're being more and more aware of the relationship between shitty toxic workplaces and overconsumption and exploitation of workers. Think about it. You work at your shitty job that breaks your spirit every day and you go buy yourself something to cheer yourself up, right? That's one way in which these things are connected. But furthermore, where there's smoke, there's often fire. Meaning, if a company is engaging in bad behavior in one area of their business, it's often doing it in other places as well. I mean, think about it. There's an intrinsic link between retailers that refuse to pay up or refuse to pay garment workers a living wage in the first place, and employers that treat their corporate retail and warehouse workers like crap. Where you see one, you see the other. A boss who bullies you probably doesn't give a fuck about microplastics or polluting waterways or exploiting workers around the world. If you don't have compassion or empathy for the people sharing your office, you certainly don't care about the humans on the other side of the planet. It's no surprise to me that a friend of a friend did some home improvement work for the horrible CEO that I worked with and discussed in this episode and found her to also be cruel and unreasonable with his team. Bullies are bullies everywhere. Furthermore, the most toxic work environments in retail and fashion always involve horrible treatment of garment and retail workers epic amounts of waste, and horrible antiquated ideas about size, race, and gender. When we fight for our rights and the rights of others, when we demand accountability from these businesses, we are moving the needle in so many areas of what it means to be a human in this world right now. Fighting for workers rights is a fight for the planet, which is a fight for better health and better food for others, which is a fight for more creativity and just a better life for everyone everywhere. In 2021, I pledged to make Close Horse more inspiring, more motivating, more community focused, and that will carry in to 2022. My goal next year is to put the pieces together even more, to show you how one thing affects another and how we can lift up so many people and our planet by fighting for these changes, by learning from the mistakes of the past, by supporting new thinkers, new businesses that are changing what it means to do business. I see the change coming right now. I've seen so much mainstream coverage of overconsumption, of Black Friday waste, of changing up our approach to stuff and work and people and the planet and social responsibility. And that's a big deal to see that becoming more mainstream. I know that change is happening and it will continue to happen if we keep up the hard work, which we're going to do. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse, written, researched, hosted, and edited by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, tell a friend because maybe they'll listen to it and they'll tell another friend and that person will want to be on Close Horse and reach out to me and it will totally make my day and you'll all get to meet someone new. So yeah, tell everyone. Thanks as always to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. Bye.